This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Joanna, Micah, Julian, Stephen, and Susanna. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's begin with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Joanna, who asks, Who wrote the Apostles' Creed? Well, Joanna, there's a story about the writing of the Apostles' Creed that originated a few centuries later, and it goes something like this. The twelve apostles supposedly got together to write a summary of the Christian faith. And each one of the twelve, as he was moved by the Spirit, contributed one article. Now, that story, if it were true, would explain why the Apostles' Creed is called the Apostles' Creed. And it would also explain the structure of the Creed because, in fact, there are actually twelve articles in the Apostles' Creed. Let's run down the twelve really quickly. The first one is about God the Father, the second about Jesus, his Son, the third is about Jesus' incarnation, the fourth is a statement about Jesus' death on the cross, and then the fifth talks about Jesus' resurrection, and then in the sixth, his ascension to the Father's right hand. Then in the seventh, we have the final judgment, And then we get a string at the end really quickly. Uh, Number eight, the Holy Spirit. Nine, the church. Ten, the forgiveness of sins. Eleven, the resurrection of the body. And then finally, article 12, everlasting life. However, having said all this, the Apostles' Creed was actually in widespread use throughout the church long before this story about its origin was being told. And actually, we don't have any first-hand evidence, any documentary evidence about the original composition of the Apostles' Creed. Probably it was a statement that was developed uh, early on in the early church based on confessions of faith that new believers would make before the congregation whenever they were received. And now we have inherited this ancient creed, and it serves us as one of the earliest summaries of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, the things that Christians have always believed from the very beginning. And now Micah asks, when Jesus told them not to tell anyone about their healing, why didn't the blind men obey? Micah, this is a great question based on my recent sermon from Matthew 9, where Jesus indeed heals a pair of blind men, tells them not to spread the word about what's happened, and they immediately go out and do that. Now, we can't say for certain why these men did what they did, because the Bible doesn't tell us what they were thinking. One thing we do know, however, is that this was not an isolated incident. Jesus often told people not to go out boasting about the miracles that he performed, and just as often, people disobeyed. Now, I think the reason that Jesus didn't want the news to be circulated is that he wasn't trying to build a following just based on his miracles. 
the point of his miraculous signs was to show that his teaching was true, to show that he truly was the promised Messiah, not to make Jesus famous just because of his power. Now, if you put yourself in the shoes of those blind men, though, you can imagine how hard it would have been for them not to talk about that healing. If, if you were one of those men, of course you would want to tell people what had happened. Of course you would want to talk about it. So their weakness is understandable. As I pointed out in the sermon on this passage, their example is also a good lesson for us. When we realize that despite their disobedience, they didn't lose the gift that Jesus had given them, it's a good reminder to us that we don't lose his forgiveness even though we struggle to continue in obedience. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Julian. Let's give Julian a round of applause. Here's Julian's question. What is Zion? You know, Julian, this is a great question because it's one of those things you could ask a lot of very knowledgeable people, people who've grown up reading the Bible, worshiping, singing hymns, and it could actually trip them up because we read so much about Zion and we talk about it and sing about it. And depending on the context, that word is referring to different things. Now, in the Bible, Zion is first and foremost the name of a place, but it becomes a kind of symbol. So, sometimes references to Zion are referring to a physical, geographical location, a place you could go to. But sometimes Zion refers to a spiritual place or idea. Now, that's true of a lot of words in the Bible, but I think it's fair to say that Zion might just be the most important one. First, let's start with the physical location. So, Zion is a hill located in Israel. That's why it's often called Mount Zion, because it's on a sort of elevation. Now, on this hill, there used to be in the old days a fortress that was built by some Canaanites who were called the Jebusites. And in 2 Samuel, King David conquers this fortress, and he decides to build his capital city there. Now, that city, the city of David, is Jerusalem. So, if you were on a journey to Zion, in a literal sense, you would be traveling to the physical city of Jerusalem. Of course, Jerusalem is more than a physical city. In Scripture, it becomes a symbol, too. Famously, in Revelation 21, the people of God are described by John as a spiritual city, a new Jerusalem. Because of that, you can take another kind of journey to Zion, a a spiritual journey. Heading to Zion, in that symbolic sense, can be entering into the kingdom of God, the church, which is itself entering into the new creation where human beings dwell in the presence of God. There's this great old hymn called Marching to Zion. It takes advantage of this symbolism. When you sing, we're marching to Zion, you mean we're heading to the city of God. We're heading for the life to come. We're heading for perfect communion with our Creator. But my favorite example of this symbolism concerning Zion comes from Scripture itself in Hebrews chapter 12. 
Here, the author of Hebrews uses two mountains, Mount Sinai, where the law was given, and Mount Zion, where the throne of David was established and Jesus went to the cross as symbols of the old covenant and the new. Listen to what he writes. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's the description of Mount Sinai, but here listen to Mount Zion. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That terrifying mountain where Moses trembled was Sinai, which stands as a testament to God's holiness and human condemnation because of our sin. But Mount Zion is described as a place of glory, of righteousness and perfection and joy, thanks to the word of grace spoken by Christ's blood. The more you study scripture, the more of these beautiful symbols and signs you will discover all of them pointing us to life in Christ. But Zion, I think, is always going to be one of the most profound. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question comes from Stephen, who asks, How old is the Bible? This is a fun question to think about because you have to keep on your toes. You might think that since Genesis 1 begins with the creation of the world, that means the Bible itself is as old as the world. But, in fact, the Bible was written much later. We attribute the first five books of the Bible to Moses, which means that they were written during his lifetime, obviously. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are this whirlwind tour of everything that happened all the way from creation to the days of Abraham. And then in Genesis 12, Moses slows things down. He picks up with the story of Abraham, and then we get chapter after chapter, the story of the patriarchs of Israel, right up to uh, Joseph triumphing in Egypt. And then in the next book, Exodus, we pick up with the enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt, God's revelation of himself to Moses. In other words, from that point, Moses is writing about things that took place during his own life. So the Exodus and the wanderings in the wilderness, right up to the time when the people are ready to enter into the promised land. So to answer this question, we just have to ask ourselves, when did Moses live? Scholars estimate that he lived about 3,600 years ago. So we could say, roughly speaking, that the first books of the Bible are about 3,600 years, give or take, old. And that means the final books of the Bible, which were written in the century after Christ, would be roughly 2,000 years old. So the Bible is between 3,600 and 2,000 years old. And now Susanna asks... Have you ever fallen asleep during a service? 
You know, Susanna, my favorite story about people falling asleep in church has to do with a special kind of pipe that has a very long stem. It's the kind that you see Gandalf and the hobbits smoking in The Lord of the Rings. That kind of pipe is called a church warden. And the story goes that in the old days, an usher or church warden would smoke one of these long pipes during a service. And if anyone fell asleep, he would use that long stem to reach out and knock them on the head and wake them up. Now, I have a feeling that's one of those legends without much basis in fact. But it's a tradition that I've thought about reviving from time to time whenever I spot somebody yawning or resting their eyes during a sermon. But Susanna, I can't believe you would ask whether I've ever fallen asleep in church. I mean, how could I possibly fall asleep during the most exciting, enthralling experience known to human beings, the closest we can get to the presence of God in this fallen world? Of course, I have never fallen asleep in church. But have I ever put anyone to sleep in church? Hmm. On that question, I'd better remain silent. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions.